I think we all know that everyone experiences trials, but everyone's experience of trial is also uniquely their own. So we all go through hardship, but there's a sense in which the hardships that you experience are unique to you. No one else fully gets what you're going through, even as they're also going through something that perhaps you don't fully get. It's remarkable that James writes in a way that can speak to the general and common experience of suffering while also giving deeply personal and individualized direction all at the same time. He has a word for those who are hardened by their trials and a word for those who perhaps are just so discouraged that it's hard to look to God again. He gives us the wisdom that we need to navigate these trials with faith. As we examined the early verses of his letter, we started to pick up on some of this. And if you weren't able to join us for for the last two weeks, I'd encourage you to listen to those sermons because they almost shape the way that we read the rest of the letter, especially the text that's before us. But ultimately, we discovered that God allows us to go through hard things, through trials, as a means of cultivating faith in our lives, of growing endurance and reliance on the Lord, on drawing us towards God in a journey that is difficult, but that results in wholeness and holiness. In fact, along the way, God promises to give us wisdom, not the kind of wisdom that is pragmatic and brings about the quickest exit point from the hard trial, but the kind of wisdom that allows us to endure with the ethic of Jesus. It's a certain moral skill that allows us to endure hardship in the same way that Jesus would. That's what James means when he talks about wisdom from God. Well, when we keep reading and we get to the next paragraph, starting in verse 9, we start to feel like James has gotten sidetracked. This whole paragraph is out of place. It doesn't make sense for it to be here. He's broken his rhythm of reflection on trials and endurance and wisdom, and now he goes off on a tangent about the rich and the poor. So I think if you or I were editing this letter for James before he sent it out, we'd say, you should just cut that section, go straight to verse 12, or like rearrange it a little bit so it makes a little bit more sense. And in fact, there are people who read the book of James and say, there's just a smattering of wisdom here. It's not really connected at all. Well, I want to suggest that this section is very closely connected to everything James has said. And in fact, he's giving us a mini parable. He's giving us an illustration of everything that he's talked about so we aren't confused at all. I think he's trying to clarify a number of issues. First, he's trying to clarify that every single person experiences hardship. Everyone will encounter trials. No one, regardless of their wealth or status or position, is able to avoid trials for all of their life. But then second... I think he wants to help us avoid misinterpreting both suffering and prosperity. I think he wants us to avoid concluding that God's wisdom is or isn't on display based on our circumstances. So we'll examine those two things 
the fact that everyone is vulnerable to trials and that circumstances are a faulty metric for measuring God's blessing. That, that's what we'll consider this morning as we examine the counterintuitive wisdom of God. But first, I want us to consider how this parable shows us that everyone experiences trials. So in this mini parable, I think James is essentially just grabbing onto the language of Jesus's parables and the conclusion to many of his parables, and he sort of infuses it with a prophetic bite as he talks about the brother in lowly circumstances on the one hand and a rich person on the other hand. So these two people just represent different ends of the spectrum of categories of people, and uh, we need to at least pause here and say, it's hard to know where we fall on this spectrum sometimes. And I think maybe at times we fall into both categories at the same time. Wealth and poverty are really a matter of comparison. And in our country and nation, as we look around us, we might consider ourselves more on the poor side of things. We're people in humble circumstances because we're not one of those people driving the Teslas around our, our neighborhood. Uh, but when we look at our wider world, I think that we probably fall onto the rich side of the spectrum. So in one way, we're both of these at the same time. It just depends on which direction we look. Uh, so we should avoid automatically assigning ourselves to someone in lowly circumstances or is a rich person. But he grabs onto these two identifications as opposite ends of a spectrum. As we read this text, he instructs the brother of humble circumstances to boast in his exaltation, but for the rich person to boast in his humiliation. And this seems like it makes zero sense to us. How is it that the person in lowly circumstances is exalted and the rich person is humbled? Well, from a first reading of the text, we might say that the lowly person can boast in their exalted position because that person has nothing to lose. Over the course of time, of time they have nowhere to go but up. So James might be saying, hey, it's all a matter of perspective. Life kind of stinks for you right now, but it can only get better. Maybe that's what he's saying. And then to the rich person, he's saying to boast in your humiliation because that guy stands to lose everything. That's the person who had all of their wealth and assets plugged into the stock market, and now they're looking at the numbers, and they're humiliated, perhaps, by their loss of income. Maybe that's what James is saying. I, I think that might be somewhat on the right track, but as I've already indicated, I think more basically, James is just trying to say, regardless of whether you are poor or rich, you are vulnerable to trials. If you have wealth, that might be a buffer against trials for some time, and it will inevitably make your life easier for a while, but trials will always overcome your wealth. Trials are not a respecter of persons. They don't show partiality. They confront all people regardless of social status or wealth. They breach every barrier. They break through every buffer. In the end, every single person will experience suffering. I think that's what James is saying at the most basic level here. And he goes on to illustrate it by pointing to the fact that the rich person thinks that his wealth will protect him from hardship. But in the parable, the sun rises and it melts away the wealth that protected him from the scorching heat of the sun. So wealth can't protect you forever. 
what he's saying here with this mini story is the same thing that's being communicated in Proverbs 18.11. The wealth of the rich is his fortified city. In his imagination, it is like a high wall. So the wealthy person might think, I don't need God or his wisdom because nothing can harm me. My wealth will protect me from anything. But that's an empty promise and it can only last, it can only defend you from trials for so long. So there's no fail-proof way of avoiding trials. There are no life hacks that will keep you from hardship. And there's no amount of money that can shield you from suffering. I think that's what James's point is here. So how does that help us as we're reading James's letter? I think it helps us because we recognize that if every person is vulnerable to hardship, then every person also must appeal to God for wisdom and strive to endure the hardship in faith and faithfulness. So these instructions that James are giving are not merely the size of an oppressed person or the pain-relieving drug of the poor person trying to find a way forward in life, just trying to make sense of whatever hardship they've encountered. Instead, it's life-giving wisdom that everyone needs. So we all need to give ourselves over to the wisdom of the scriptures, and in particular, the wisdom in James's letter here. Now, because all of us are probably fitting into that category of the rich person, we need to pay attention to this. If you woke up today and you took no thought of where you would get your food from, if, if you go week after week and are never really concerned that you won't have money to live on, that you won't have a place to stay, you're not appealing to God every day for your daily bread, then I would suggest that you're in the rich person category, at least in some respects. For those of us in that category, very often we live our lives without taking thought of God until the moment when that protective barrier falls away until the moment we lose our job, or until the moment that the stock market crashes, or until we hit rock bottom in some other way. Well, James is trying to tell you, don't wait until that happens to live a life of faith and endurance and a life defined by the wisdom of God. Seek God now. Live for God now. Don't count your situation, your wealthy barrier that protects you from hardship, As a God, count it as nothing and recognize your need for God. But I think that we can go even deeper here. Think as we recognize that every single person is impacted by hardship. We're freed from the captivity of jealousy and the death of comparison as we look at other people and wish that we had their hardships because it seems like they don't have any hardships. We look at people who have quote-unquote perfect lives, and we're jealous of them. We wish that we had their lives, that we could leave our own and take up what God has given to them. And as we start imagining vainly that if we could just get enough wealth or position or status that we would never have hardship, we start coveting after a new job or a bigger paycheck or a nicer car or a more attractive appearance, or a more likable disposition, or better behaved kids, or a more considerate spouse, we start grabbing after anything that promises protection from hardship. But the reality is we're 
grabbing after a mist in the wind. There's nothing there. If we can recognize that every single one of us will face hardship, then these things that offer protection from hardship don't matter as much. We don't have to be jealous. We don't have to compare. Now, I'm not trying to invalidate the hardships that you face, and I'm not trying to say never look for a practical solution to practical problems. We should do that. But I think that within all of us, especially given our social and cultural setting, all of us have an inclination to compare our lives with others and imagine that there's a secret out there somewhere that will relieve suffering forever. And we give ourselves over to that. We chase after it. And and we're really chasing something that doesn't exist. We're looking for something that can bring about a dream life so that we can be like that Instagram influencer who's always like perfect and beautiful, who has a perfect number of children frolicking through fields of wheat dressed in their white clothes that never get dirty and they never disobey along the way. We get these visions of what the good life is and we give ourselves to chasing that and we forget God along the way. That's what I'm trying to push against. That's not reality. And if you ever meet one of those Instagram influencers and you get to know them well enough, you'll find out that it's not true. These visions of life apart from hardship and suffering are not reality, so we can give up on chasing after them. We can live fully where God has put us and as who God has made us because nothing we acquire will protect us from suffering forever. We're going to face it. And when we can square up to reality, ironically, we're able to live more joyfully and whole and full and flourishing lives in the midst of suffering instead of always being distracted from real life by running away from it. So I think James helps us out in that way. He just shows us reality. Everyone is going to suffer. And once we become freed from false visions of the good life and false ways to get there, we're able to live with others more authentically and empathetically. So what I'm trying to say here is when you set aside the vision of the good life that you're chasing, that really isn't that good, and you're freed from comparing yourself with others, you're able to relate to them more truly and more rightly. You don't have to hide your hurts and your losses. You don't have to talk about your happiness and joy only in terms of the possession and prosperity that you gain. You also don't have to be jealous of others. You don't have to be afraid that others will be unwilling to sympathize with you in your own suffering. When we look at other people's hardships, we never think it serves them right. And we never begrudge someone their happiness, particularly when they're getting a happiness that we really want, but just can't seem to attain. Instead, we can learn to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We can be truly happy for one another and truly sad with one another. We can share in one another's sufferings and joys. And in that way, we can be Christ to one another who also shares in our sufferings and joys. We have to be freed from this idea that there are certain people out there who just never face suffering and that we alone face suffering. Instead, suffering and trial impact everybody. 
So I think that's just a very basic thing that we can take away from this mini parable and then start to put into work in our lives and relationships. I think that's a very basic level what James is saying. But in this parable, I think that he also demonstrates to us that hardship and prosperity cannot measure Christian faithfulness or wise living. Hardship and prosperity are really meaningless metrics of God's blessing in our lives. So if we're reading this in context, James has just instructed believers who are experiencing trials and hardship to ask God for wisdom. And what's more, he's promised that God will actually give them that wisdom. And if you define wisdom as the knowledge you need to find the shortest path to success and ease, or the fastest route out of the trial, you might expect that the way to discern whether or not God has made good on his promise is that you're free of hardship, that you're out of the trial immediately, that you've made the right choice to alleviate pain and suffering right away. And if the decisions that you make result in greater hardship or prolonged suffering, you might assume that you're not living according to God's wisdom, or perhaps that he hasn't even answered your request for it. But that way of thinking defines God's wisdom as bare pragmatism, when God's wisdom really is defined as moral skill. So that when we ask God for wisdom, it does not mean that he gives us the hack that we need to get out of our hardship. Instead, it means that God gives us the ethic of Jesus that allows us to endure in faithfulness. That's really what we considered last week. But if you're hearing that God will give you wisdom for your hardship, and and then you start to see poverty and riches, you might think the way to measure my faithfulness to God and God's faithfulness to me is to measure it in terms of poverty and riches. But that's just not the case. So I want to lean into this a little and address two wrong conceptions that I think are popular in in Christianity. First, there's the wrong conception that suffering and hardship indicate Christian faithfulness to God and God's faithfulness to Christians. Now, this, I think, is a misconception that's bred particularly in more conservative realms of Christianity, and it's the opposite of the next misconception, okay? But I think sometimes we start to say that suffering and hardship indicate Christian faithfulness at all times. So if, we're, if we are suffering, then that means that we're always suffering with and for Christ. If we're going through a hardship, that means that we must be being faithful to God. If, if people don't like us, we must be doing something right. When in reality, sometimes, that suffering and hardship is a result of our own unfaithfulness to God in some way might be the result of our laziness or our failure to plan ahead or an unwise pattern of behavior or living in a way that God never calls us to, being needlessly offensive to other people. I think sometimes we can say, if I'm suffering, that is an absolute validation that I'm being faithful to God. In the same way, some people are convinced that to be a Christian To walk in the way of Christ always means that if you have two options available to you for any given thing, you must always take the hard option. That if you ever take an easier option or an option that appears to be more profitable, you're doing Christianity wrong. Well, I I think that's a little bit of a 
wrong way of looking at the calls to suffering in the Bible. I think that's probably more a mode of operating that could be defined as hard-headedness than wisdom. But more likely, if we're convinced that the Christian life must always and in every sense be filled with suffering— I think that maybe we have a misconception about the nature and the character of God. So James has already made clear that God willingly and gently gives wisdom. And just a few verses later, he's going to make clear that every good gift originates with God. He's trying to tell you that God is loving and kind. God does not demand that his children endure pointless hardship. I want to lean into this. Because I think if you grew up like I did, then you start to imagine God as a God who just doesn't like people. As a God who is fundamentally wrathful or angry or impatient or excessively demanding. But that's not the way that James talks about God. And really the way that James talks about God is just an echo of the way that Jesus talked about God. In fact, in verse 16 and 17, James wants to make clear that we should not be convinced into thinking that God is a cosmic killjoy or an eternal stick in the mud. He doesn't want us to think about God that way. So verse 16, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God is a good God who delights in giving good gifts. So we should not be deceived into thinking that God is most happy with us when we are most miserable in him. That's not the message of the Bible. But we can, I think, misunderstand the calls to suffering in the Christian Bible and start to say that suffering necessarily means that God is at work in our lives or that we are being faithful to him. When in reality, sometimes the suffering comes because of our own unfaithfulness ultimately comes because of our foolishness. But it gets worse. There are, I think, across many churches and denominations and Christian colleges and seminaries, a grabbing on to the language of suffering in the Bible by the leaders of those organizations who manipulate others into living a life of suffering and hardship so that the leaders of those organizations can live a life of luxury. I think that sometimes within the Christian world, those who are leading in it are unwilling to suffer for Christ themselves, and so they twist texts of Scripture that call Christians to faithfully endure suffering. They twist those texts of Scripture and use them to convince other people to suffer so that they can live easy lives. This is not true just in terms of churches and denominations. I think it's also true in terms of Christian homes, where leaders in that home can suggest that God's desire for them is to have an easy life, and the way that happens is by their family suffering so they can get what they want. I think that virtually in every situation— where Christians find themselves with some level of influence or authority or leadership, there's the potential to abuse the biblical teaching about Christian suffering to bring about their own desired ends, and we need to watch out for that. Uh, You as church members need to watch out for that, and us as pastors need to watch out to make sure that we don't do that, 
that we don't call you to suffer in the name of Christ when really it's something that's self-serving. It is true that the Christian life includes suffering. In fact, I think it's a normal part of it. But the Christian worldview does not teach that suffering itself is a standalone good. Suffering as a good in itself is not a virtue. Now, there are virtuous ways to suffer, and often virtue is formed through suffering, but God never makes suffering an end goal. So when you think of God, don't think of him as if he's just trying to make you suffer pointlessly. The presence of suffering and hardship does not necessarily indicate that you're being faithful to Christ. So that's one misconception. Now, I think uh, that's, if you look at like our culture at large, no one's holding on to this misconception. It happens when, you know, more in like the generations of Christians over time in in church settings um, or through misreadings of God's character. Perhaps more potent in our society is the misconception that wealth and prosperity indicate Christian faithfulness to God and God's faithfulness to them. Um, So we might say that there's a misconception that if you are living a good life in terms of wealth and prosperity, that you're necessarily working out biblical wisdom in your life. But this is just the opposite error of the first misconception. Sometimes this error is taught in formal, systematic ways, sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel, and sometimes it's just informed by the intuition of the American idealism that life should just be good and easy. It doesn't come from Jesus' life and teaching, because a quick observation of Jesus' life reveals deep and long suffering. So while this misconception rightly grabs onto the notion that God loves and cares for his children, they do so while neglecting the larger picture of the Christian life in the New Testament. They want to follow Jesus, perhaps, but they don't want to suffer with and for Jesus. So operating from this perspective, essentially anything that appears positive on its face is counted as a result of faithfulness to God and a sign of God's blessing, while anything negative or any hardship appears to be a sign of unfaithfulness to God or a sign of God's judgment. So when the thing gets hard, we will say that God just isn't in this thing that we're working on. We'll say that God isn't pouring out his blessing on it. And then we veer in the opposite way, and we do everything we can to find immediate happiness, immediate ease. So in the larger church world, we prize occasions when churches explode with growth, or when Christian authors make a bestseller list, or when an athlete references God in a post-win interview, or when your bank account gets bigger or when the right politicians get elected into office. Whenever things are going well, we might be inclined to say that it is obvious that God's blessing is here, when that's just not quite the case. It is not true that whenever something seems to be going well, that God's blessing is at work. Quick reading of the Old Testament shows us this. We can think of the situation when Israel was in the desert— 
asking for meat when God had already given them manna. And then meat starts flying in from all directions, and it appears like God's blessing until they choke on the excess and die. It wasn't a blessing after all. So in this parable, James is trying to show that neither humble circumstances and poverty nor riches and, un, or, and prosperity are virtuous on their own. Neither necessarily indicate God's blessing or lack of it. Neither necessarily vindicate faithfulness or unfaithfulness to God. So, um, we might simply say, don't, don't use these as measurements for any of these things. As you receive good gifts from the Lord, thank him for them. As you receive hardship from the Lord, thank him for the hardship as well. So what do we do then? If it's true that we can't measure God's blessing or our faithfulness in either of those ways, how do we move forward? I want to suggest that we move forward and we make sense of James's instructions by boasting not in our suffering, by boasting not in our wealth and prosperity, but boasting that we know the Lord. That's what means everything. So we need to pay careful attention to the language James uses in verse 9. He calls on the brother of humble circumstances to boast in his exaltation and the rich to boast in his humiliation. I want to suggest put quotation marks around exaltation and humiliation in your Bible so when you read it, you can pause and think, well, in what way is the person who is poor exalted and, and the rich person humbled? Well, I think it's somewhat ironic in one sense because James is calling us to look towards the future. So it's not your current circumstances, but the irony that when God's kingdom values are put into place, what is low is raised high and what is high is brought down. So it points us to look forward, to look long, for the wealthy person to recognize that their wealth is not everything to them. So they shouldn't rely on it. For the person in poor and humble circumstances to realize this isn't all there is. Look long. Look to verse 12, because on the final day, God will give the crown which is life to those who love him. But I think that if we can detect the Old Testament illusion in this verse, we can say even more. I think that James is referencing Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 in that statement. This is what that text says. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is what James is saying. In all of your boasting, regardless of what circumstance you find yourself in, boast in this. Make a big deal out of this, that you know the Lord. When we respond to that call, we're able to say, I can look at my life and my circumstances now not just from inside of it and in the present, but from God's perspective. I can look at my life 
not in isolation, not burdened down by the circumstances or riding the high of, of the prosperity I'm experiencing now, but I can view my life as if Jesus is standing directly in front of me and I can boast in nothing but that I know him. James's teaching here calls to mind an account in the Gospels, a really sobering account, where a rich young ruler approaches Jesus. This guy is representative of, of the young and the wealthy and the powerful, and he comes to Jesus and asks him what he can do to get eternal life. This guy's figured, I, I have everything that this life can have to offer, and I want even more than that. Well, Jesus has detected that this guy is boasting in his wealth. So Jesus tells him, sell everything that you have, give the proceeds to the poor, follow me, and then you will receive the crown, which is life. You will have set up treasures in heaven. But the guy walked away sorrowful. What that instance teaches us, what James is telling us here, is that when we stand before Jesus, everything else is stripped away. That's how it's always been. That's how it's been from the first time Jesus came. That's how it will be when Jesus returns. It's how it will be when you close your eyes in death and you wake in the presence of God. Everything will be stripped away and nothing will bring you life. That life will come from Christ alone. There's nothing you can do to ingratiate yourself to him. There's nothing that you can do on your own to avoid the judgment of God. There's nothing you can do to earn his favor. So we boast in this, that we know the Lord. We count everything else as lost. We don't lean into our status or position or possessions, and we're not discouraged by our hardship. We rejoice always in this, that we know the Lord. How do we respond to this? How do we, practice, how do we practically do this? How do we boast in our humiliation and in our exaltation depending on our respective circumstances? It's quite simple. It's that we come to Jesus just as we are, valuing everything that we find in him and in him alone. So the music team is going to come up and we're going to sing in response to this what I hope we will all embody in our lives that we will come to Christ clinging unto nothing else, that we'll give ourselves fully over to him. So it should be our prayer that we can truly say now, and when we stand before Christ on the final day, that we're coming just as we are, finding everything in him. Let's sing together. Let's stand.